Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. For this episode of Hidden Histories, I spoke with Rachel Hewitt about women and outdoor sports and how the notion of women only becoming interested in sports outdoors in the late 20th century is, in fact, a false one. Rachel Hewitt, welcome to this episode of Hidden Histories. It's lovely to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. So we're going to talk about women's outdoor sports and the history behind women's outdoor sports and how much of your research now and and what's going to be in your forthcoming book is all about recovering women's voices in this area that is traditionally quite considered quite masculine. How did you come to, to identify this lacuna in research around female interest in outdoor sports? Yeah, so it actually started with a trip to a shop to buy some new running shoes. And, you know, I sort of realised that there's this huge wealth of different types of running shoes kind of in the shop, you know, for like fell running, for trail running, for road running, track running. But the shop only had two pairs of shoes that were distinctly for female physiology. You know, so I said, like, you know, what, why is this? Why do you have like so few shoes for women? And he said, oh, well, you know, women didn't really start running until like the 1970s or 1980s. You know, men have been running since ancient Greece, but women have only really been running for like 30 or 40 years. So, you know, manufacturers are playing catch up. And I sort of went away, you know, I sort of nodded and smiled and I was like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. And I went away and I was like, you know, is that really true? Like running is such such a kind of instinctive form of activity. You know, we do it as children. I was like, did, did women really only take up this sport in like the 1970s? So I did a bit of Googling and there were quite a lot of blogs that were kind of making the same claim. But then I found these extraordinary collection taken by a female mountaineer called Lizzie LeBlonde in the 1880s. And these were photographs taken in St. Moritz and they are almost entirely of women, you know, of female athletes, really, of sort of women climbing mountains, of women playing tennis, women ice skating, women hiking, you know, a few women running, women cycling. And I was so interested in the kind of, you know, in the clash of these different narratives, you know, that I'm being told on one, you know, on one level that women only came to outdoor sports in the 1970s. But yet there's all this evidence of women's enthusiastic participation, you know, 100 years earlier. And so I suppose the book came out of that clash. You know, I wanted to know 
you know, why do we have this misconception that women only started participating in outdoor sport in the last 40 years? You know, why have we forgotten about these earlier women? What happened? You know, is it that they were actually driven out of outdoor sport or is it that we just stopped telling their stories? So that's kind of what the book's trying to do, really. What do we know about Lizzie LeBlanc? She sounds like a really interesting character. Yeah, I mean... I was wanting to see her both as an individual, um, but also, I suppose, as emerging out of a context. You know, so as an individual, actually, you know, she was from, you know, a very, very well-to-do, you know, sort of um, landed family in Ireland, um, which means there's fairly good records, you know, of her life, of her family. But I'm sort of aware of the fact there is often a tendency in kind of adventure narratives to see participants as kind of outlying individuals, you know, as sort of extraordinary one-offs. And I suppose mm. I wanted to see Lizzie LeBlonde in terms of sort of how she fit into a context of women's mountaineering. You know, was she the first mm. or actually was she building on generations of women who had gone before her? And, you know, what was her role, I suppose, in you know, in kind of memorialising that tradition. Yeah. And do you think that she, do you think that she was unique in her, in, in this case? Or do you think that she was just a representative of, of an entire contingent of women who are really enjoying this sort of activity? I mean, I think it's a bit of both. You know, part of why I'm drawn to her is that she was extraordinarily prolific in the amount that she wrote about her mountaineering, in the way in which she documented it through photographs. But she also was one of the founders of the Ladies Alpine Club, which was, you know, one of the first female mountaineering clubs in Britain. And, you know, really was kind of part of an attempt, I think, to to kind of create a space for um, aspects of mountaineering that were kind of specific to women. But at the same time, she also, you know, she wasn't the first female mountaineer by any means. You know, there was, you know, generations of women who came before her. And the way that she was able to start mountaineering was because, you know, there was, you know, women had laid the groundwork for her. You know, she started mountaineering because she was unwell, you know, it was thought that she had tuberculosis. So she went to a sanatorium in, you know, in Switzerland. And actually, there's such an interesting history of kind of how mountain sports come out of these sanatoria in Switzerland. You know, often I think the narratives of, you know, kind of women with disabilities in the mountains are kind of, you know, even more marginalised than, you know, than kind of women without disabilities. But actually, a lot of the first female mountaineers were in the mountains because they're unwell, you know, either with acute or chronic conditions. Yeah, I was going to ask is, do you think that this, um, this trend for being for, for, for female activity outdoors came with a health movement or a a need for health so taking fresh air because obviously you know in the 18th century and uh it was the idea of promenading was was very popular but do you think that it went a step ahead of that in the 19th century when travel and exploration became more popular generally yeah I mean I guess this is part of a question of sort of why do we do this you know like why do we hike why do we mountaineer why do we you know why do we run 
And actually, I think, you know, what I'm sort of interested in is the kind of diversity of answers to that question. You know, that yes, certainly there were some women who were primarily in it for health reasons, but actually, you know, there were women in it for all sorts of reasons, you know, for the kind of, you know, opportunities that were afforded by, by exploration. But I think one of the things I'm particularly interested in is the kind of political import, you know, that actually a lot of the early mountaineers were suffragists, you know, they were kind of strongly aligned with the temperance movement, which on one level, yes, is to do with health, but is also to do with tackling the kind of social ills that come from drinking. You know, so there are these very strong alignments of women reclaiming outdoor space through sport and women reclaiming their presence in public space politically as well. How much do you think this changed um, around the war? Because women were taking on more masculine roles just in society generally. Do you think that this opened up sports to women as well that were considered prior to conflict, mostly masculine spaces? Yeah, it's interesting to think about these kind of points of kind of rupture, perhaps in history. And I think, you know, there's this kind of idea that, you know, at the end of the 18th century, there's this kind of development of separate spheres in which kind of, you know, women are driven out of the outdoors, kind of into the home. But actually, you know, and then I think it is possible to think about the war as opening up opportunity for women. But I think what I'm sort of particularly interested in is a sort of period at the end of the 19th century. I don't think, you know, there's enough evidence for a clear cut statement that women are suddenly in separate spheres, you know, through the sort of early 19th century. You know, it seems to me there's never a golden age, right, in which women are kind of free in public space. But that actually, you know, there's a kind of really interesting and kind of devastating, really, series of concerted attempts to kind of drive women out of public space at the end of the 19th century that, you know, in some ways take place in kind of spaces like kind of, you know, restaurants or libraries or pubs where women are sort of siphoned into ladies' rooms and, you know, barred from the main space. But in sports, you know, there is this whole raft of exclusions of women from formal organised sport. So you have something like, you know, the Swiss Alpine Club, which until, you know, the first decade of the 20th century is a mixed sex club. You know, it allows women to be full members. And then I think it's around 1906, they take a decision that no, actually, women can't be members anymore. You know, so there's a whole series of these kind of decisions, either when new sporting clubs are set up and that women are debarred from membership or that you know previously mixed sex clubs suddenly become single sex ones but it's also of course the era in which you know the olympics kind of begins and you know the whole rationale for the modern olympics really is to kind of regenerate masculinity you know after Um, you know, the Franco-Prussian war and this sort of sense that actually men are degenerating and men are insufficient. And, you know, the modern Olympics is really designed to kind of regenerate masculinity. And of course, women are, you know, have barely any presence in the Olympics. You know, the kind of founder of the Olympics, Pierre de Coubertin, says, you know, sports, it's not in women's nature. You know, women are naturally spectators. So I suppose I'm sort of interested. I mean, yes, I think in some respects, 
the war does open up a few opportunities for women, but I think it's still very much in the aftermath of those exclusions. And I think the legacy of those exclusions really lasts until the 1970s. Yeah, I was wondering when when women's sports became competitive. So, I mean, the, the idea that I'm getting from you is that, that women were participating in sports, but they weren't participating in, in the same way that men were. They were purely recreational rather than with any sort of element of competition, endurance and the ability to demonstrate skill. Is that, would you say that's right? Well, I think this is like such an important question and like totally fascinating. So I think, um, I think it's complicated, you know, that's always (laughs) the answer, isn't it? I think firstly, um, what I'm like really interested by at the moment is the idea is our modern understanding of sport, right? So I was having a conversation on Twitter with someone about this the other day, where they said, you know, if it's not competitive, if it doesn't have times involved, you know, if you're not competing against yourself or someone else, it's not sport. And I was like, well, actually, is that true? You know, because sport is such an old word, you know, and you think of kind of how sport is used in Shakespeare. And actually, you know, I went back and looked really carefully at the etymology of the word sport. And actually, you know, its primary meaning, you know, up until the sort of mid 19th century was that it referred to an activity that was fun. You know, that's what it meant. It meant something, you know, usually physically vigorous, but the you know for something to be sport it had to be done because it was fun and pleasurable um it also had a kind of undertone of kind of irreverence you know of being slightly socially subversive you know um but really it's around the middle of the 19th century that sport becomes associated with rules and regulations and ruling bodies. You know, so you get a writer in a kind of sports journal in the 1880s saying, you know, what defines sport is that it's ruled over by a ruling body. You know, that would have been totally alien to someone 200 years previously. So I think that, um, you know, there is this under, there's this shift, really radical shift, I think, in sort of the understanding of what sport is, which sort of ends up separating, I think, kind of serious sport, perhaps from kind of amateur sports. Sorry, I'm doing sort of quotation marks around these, but obviously <laughs> no one will be able to see that. Quote unquote serious sports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, yeah, there becomes this kind of, you know, quite rigid difference between amateur and kind of professional sport yes. in which, you know, women are kind of relegated you know, to the amateur side and excluded from, you know, a lot of the competitions that come to define sport, a lot of the formal organisations that come to define sport. But that isn't to say that women don't participate in competition and that women don't participate in sport because it's competitive. You know, there's a huge diversity of reasons why women participate in kind of what they get out of it. And I think, you know, there's a history of kind of female long distance speed walkers called like pedestrians who sort of particularly from about the 1820s to 1850s participated in they'd kind of walk one mile every hour, but for six weeks, you know, so like no more than sort of 80 minutes sleep at any one time, you know, for six weeks. And the idea would be that men, you know, would bet on their ability to kind of finish the course. You know, this was competitive in that women tried to, you know, sort of earn a living from it by saying they would go further or longer than any woman before. It was quite exploitative too. You know, lots of the women who did this were kind of young girls who were sort of forced into it by their fathers. So I think women have a kind of 
complicated relationship with competitive sport, you know, through the 19th century, that sometimes it's a kind of zone of exploitation for them. You know, sometimes it's something they're excluded from and is made to sort of make their own participation seem non-serious. But then at the same time, you also get women who are, you know, hugely competitive, don't want to seed the idea of competitiveness or sort of the idea of, you know, being the best, you know, to men. But then you also get women reacting against, you know, particularly in sort of mountaineering, the idea that it's all about getting to the summit and getting to the summit first or fastest. You know, so there's a bit of a kind of wealth of, you know, sort of different attitudes, really, to the idea of competition. Do you think that it was also something that was really enjoyed more exclusively by elite women as part of becoming immersed within that very male social construct? So I'm thinking of... I'm thinking primarily of these sort of colonial sporting activities that women did go on. So, you know, they would have, carry women's shotguns or, you know, women who were hiking or mountaineering, as, as, you, as you say, but also things like archery or just game shooting, like, 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 uh, like bird shooting in, in England. Do you think that it was shaped by society or do you think that there were op- options for sporting activities for women outside of that outside of that I suppose, elite social structure I think there were opportunities you know you have things like kind of smock races in village fairs for example where young girls in the village would compete against each other for you know for a smock to win a smock or a sort of jug or something you know and that was sort of throughout the 18th century and into the early 19th century and you know those certainly weren't elite women but I think that yeah it's something I've had to be really careful about because I suppose you know the sort of starting idea for the book was these photographs by Lizzie LeBlond of you know Sam Moritz and doing a bit of sort of digging into the nature of the sort of society that was formed in Sam Moritz you know actually it was you know, it offered this opportunity for sort of permissiveness and often quite kind of radical social relations that I think, you know, Lizzie LeBlond and lots of other women found hugely refreshing after the sort of stifling social nature of London. Mm. And the way I sort of started to think about this, you know, initially was like, oh, there's this, you know, that mountaineering offers this sort of opportunity for utopian communities. But actually, I mean, you know, as you said, it it offers those opportunities for a tiny minority of, you know, elite white women. And so I've been quite, you know, I've had to think quite a lot about, I don't know, I mean, it's just such a complicated question, isn't it? You know, how do we deal with the fact that men tend to dominate sport and public space? And, you know, how do we create kind of more space for women, you know, within public space, but also within sport. And, you know, one answer to that is to create these sort of sequestered spaces, these kind of, you know, utopian communities. And, you know, those spaces have their benefits and their purposes and are hugely important, but it can also in some ways be quite exclusive, you know, and aren't necessarily a solution for kind of widespread social change. I mean, that's kind of what I'm sort of thinking about at the moment, and I don't really have any clear answers on it, but, you know, sort of thinking about when are safe spaces hugely beneficial for women and when are they a bit more problematic? Yeah, and I think, you know, that's a question that is on everybody's lips at the moment. You know, how can women reclaim outdoor space? 
how can women feel safe in outdoor space, which is so gendered, it's so masculine. You know, I think this idea of of, of women being able to exercise physically, so go, go running outdoors, do you think that it is largely down to this sort of 19th century mindset that the outdoors has become so acutely gendered to the point where it feels as an, an unsafe space for women? I think there are a lot of the same techniques that men use now to demarcate public space as a male domain that were there in the late 19th century. You know, I think there's a lot of continuity. So, for example, the kind of idea that, you know, sort of if women enter public space, they're somehow acquiescing in their own abuse you know that this is what men are like this is what public space is like you know what you're getting you know this you've signed up for this you know this is a view that was really explicitly articulated in those terms by men in you know the late 19th century um like ray lancaster who was the third director of the Natural History Museum, like, you know, was a street harasser and, you know, wrote a letter saying, well, what do women expect if they go outside, you know? And I think there's, you know, if you listen to sort of interviews with street harassers now, it's exactly the same view, you know, that, you know, you're literally asking for it as a woman by going out in public. But I think, you know, it is such a complicated question, this question of sort of how we deal with the way, the degree to which women feel at risk in public, you know, and I started off thinking like, there must be one answer, right? It must be like, it's one question, there must be one answer. But then sort of realise actually the whole concept of risk is so, you know, so complicated, you know, because on the one hand, you've got the very real risks that women face of, you know, street harassment, which, you know, a study in 2014, said, you know, like 99% of women in the US have experienced street harassment. I think there was a 2017 study here that was like 97%, you know. You know, then there are sort of slightly smaller numbers of women who are kind of physically assaulted, but it's still a significant risk. You know, this isn't all in our heads. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, I think as a society, we choose to focus on certain risks against others. You know, so it is both true that women are at risk in public space and that women are also at risk in the home. You know, that lockdown, which has made it harder for women to like run alone in public space, has also seen a significant rise in domestic violence. You know, we are at risk in both these places. You know, it doesn't have to be kind of one or the other. And I think it's also the case that the messaging that women get about the degree to which we are at risk is also sometimes excessive, you know, beyond the degree to which we're at risk. You know, I think all these things are true at the same time, you know. So, you know, and that's not at all to say that, you know, women are, you know, in quotes, hysterical or fear-mongering. But I think that, you know, if you look at research into, you know, how parents raise daughters and sons in terms of, in terms of sort of passing on the parents' perception to which children are at risk, you know, there's a huge differential, you know, particularly what I found really interesting is that it's actually fathers, again, you know, fathers with their daughters treat them particularly as if they're at risk, you know, mothers treat their daughters and sons in a more comparable way. But it's, you know, fathers pass on this sense to their little girls, you know, that they are hugely at risk. And this is against all statistical evidence of physical injury. You know, so if you look at sort of, you know, how parents 
treat children in playgrounds. Boys, little boys are between two to four times more likely to become injured in playgrounds. But yet it's little girls who are being raised with the sense that, you know, oh gosh, no, don't stand on that. You know, you're going to fall off. You're going to hurt yourself. You know, actually little girls, I mean, it's, you know, it's partly chicken and egg, isn't it? Little girls partly don't injure themselves so much because of this messaging. But at the same time, what's also interesting is that the way that kids behave actually has no bearing on how parents treat them. So that if the children who are safest and have fewest injuries are the ones who are monitored most closely, like in the future. And the more likely a child is to injure themselves, the less likely the parent will be to monitor them, which is like so counterintuitive. But, you know, it makes us sort of, it makes you sort of realise that the messages that women are being kind of brought up with from a really young age are sometimes illogical about the risk that we face, you know, and actually sort of ideological, I think, in terms of perpetuating an idea that women are vulnerable outside, that we're vulnerable in public life, and that actually, you know, we're better suited to being in the home, really. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, and also this idea, you know, of women, it's a it's a very seemingly, I say seemingly, again, quote unquote, 19th century, very Victorian, Dickensian idea of, of, of the immaculate girl and then the sort of scruffy boy who's a little bit of a street urchin and and getting into getting into scuffles and it's all part of becoming a becoming a lad becoming a boy and you know sport as well is so intertwined with that this idea of this kind of this this the trope of the pub, rugby playing public schoolboy that you just don't see with any form of female identity I would say even now, I mean, the idea of, of of female rugby players is almost, I mean, massively stereotyped, but also mocked as well. I think in certain in certain senses, I think people, some people find find just even the even the idea of it hilarious or or, or um, ridiculous in some way. And it again, as you just said, it perpetuates this idea of of girls having to be very 
very safe and and still and not move and not be physical. And I mean, how much of that sense of female safety in sports and just on the streets and in the outdoors as well, just the sense of women being outdoors and, and safety and but also being very physical in sports. How much do you think this idea of harassment and sport and being moving is is so is is tied up to it female sport being quite sexualized yeah i mean i think you know everything you've just said is you know is absolutely right and i think you know that sense of that that kind of um, pervasive idea that there's something that is required by sport that is not in women's nature you know and i think you know part of this is also to do with you know, the messages that we're given about risk as well, that often, you know, sports are often kind of represented as being about, you know, that to be good at mountaineering, to be good at climbing, you know, you need to be like a natural risk taker, you know, and often I think narratives like that are deliberately used to exclude women from those sports. You know, you quite explicitly get people even now saying like, it's not really natural for a woman to be a good climber because women are naturally risk averse, you know, but actually it's like, it's not true, (laughs) you know, that like we use this idea of what risk taking means and what risk aversion means in order to construct a narrative in which women are excluded. You know, is climbing really about risk taking? Actually, if you read interviews with climbers, they say it's not. They say it's about risk management. You know, you're not a very good climber if you're like really into reckless risk taking, you know. So actually the narratives, you know, the stereotypes that are created around sport are often like warping what our idea of sort of even like what risk is, you know, in order to deliberately, you know, deliberately exclude women. And yes, I think, you know, the point about sort of sexualization is, you know, it it does go down to these sort of these kind of stereotypes of like what women are for, what women are good at. And they're generally quite you know, opposed to our, our ideas of what sport is and, you know, who who's good at sport kind of you know, and recruits this idea of sort of natural characteristics, I think. Yeah, I suppose there's lots of sort of claims that, you know, little boys or men are kind of, you know, natural risk takers because of testosterone. But actually, I think the evidence is, you know, kind of very dubious, really. And, you know, it seems to me there's this kind of overwhelming wealth of evidence that we're socialised according to these gender expectations of being risk takers or being risk averse from a really young age you know, sort of used to exclude us. But I think the sort of, you know, what I found sort of most important really about work I've done on this book is how, you know, sport isn't a kind of segregated area away from normal life, you know, that actually our ability to feel free and powerful in sport is like directly commensurate with our ability to feel free and powerful in public space. And that is to do with our ability to feel free and powerful in public life. You know, and I think it's no coincidence that there was this protest in Cambridge in the 1890s against um, like by male undergraduates and male staff members against the prospect of women taking degrees. And the the icon they use for their protest is they hung up an effigy of a female cyclist from the CUP bookshop. You know, so like women, you know, like sports women become these sort of encapsulations of like women making a land grab somehow for like public life. You know, yes. and it's, yeah, there's, a, um, there's an interview with the, I mean, this is a much more minor example, but, you know, an interview with 
a guy in the 1940s who was really opposed to women being in his pub. And he said, firstly, if a woman's in a pub, it's not a pub because pub means public and women don't belong in public. And he said, you know, the problem with women in pubs is they all come from their tennis courts and they're all sweaty, you know. And so there's this kind of direct link that, you know, is sometimes being made really explicit, like in that Cambridge protest, but sometimes just operates on quite a sort of casual level in people's, you know, sort of attitude, which is that, you know, women in sports are sort of, in quotes, unnatural in terms of their kind of the power that they want to have in public life. There's links like that which just make it really explicit. Physical ability as well, that actually, you know, women can be incredibly physically powerful. You know, when, when women have ability, um, they have strength in a way that, yes, you have natural biological masculine strength, of course. I mean, that is a large part of why we're talking about how women feel threatened outdoors, because that is something that has to be taken into account. Men are more of a physical take up more physical space and presence than most women but also is there something that is that is threatening to men about women being able to exercise that sense of of power that sense of dominance through the ability to to exercise yeah I think there is and I think there's also something about that sport makes very clear, like the difference in sort of sexed physiology, you know, that in sport, women can't really be told to just behave like men. You know, we can't sort of conform ourselves to sort of male expectations, because we literally have different physiology. And I think what's really striking to me is that of all the sort of forms of exclusion of women from public space at the end of the 19th century, it was the exclusion from sports that kind of lasted the longest. You know, like ladies' reading rooms in libraries mainly went by the end of the kind of, you know, there was sort of an 1860s, 50s thing and had kind of gone by the beginning of the 20th century. You know, ditto really with sort of like ladies' parlours in restaurants. And I think also like it's interesting to me that sort of women's exclusion from academia kind of went, you know, or was eroded kind of much earlier than women's exclusion from organised sport. And I think it's kind of that, I think, I don't know, I'm not certain about this, but it's an idea I'm sort of playing around with. In academia, you can kind of pretend that women aren't, you can sort of pretend that maybe women are men, you know, <laughs> you can sort of make an expectation that sort of women will just sort of fit in around the kind of sort of structures and expected forms of practice that have already been instituted by the men you know but actually you can't do that in sport it's like women require you know our own competing categories mm. you know we require a kind of completely different understanding of sort of like what we're good at and you know which physiological areas might pose challenges you know we require a whole separate area of sports science you know and I think it is partly that that makes that historically made men so sort of reluctant to kind of seed space in sport. So one thing I really wanted to ask you just to summarise all of this, because you have identified this this giant gap, which kind of ends in the 1970s when it was like allegedly women started doing sports again. Um, how have you in your research been able to or att attempted to recover women's voices up, into, up until the 1970s? 
Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of next area I've got to work on. Um, I mean, there's sort of, you know, amazing organisations like, you know, the Pinnacle Club, which has just made its archives and journals online. I've done quite a lot of work in the Alpine Club library and archives and, you know, looking at sort of newsletters and sort of journals from the Ladies Alpine Club. And, you know, sort of looking, I suppose, at the kind of ways in which women continued, you know, sort of participating in sport, you know, between the kind of 1900s and the 1970s and continued writing about them, but also the ways in which exclusion kind of was maintained. So, for example, I've been quite interested in sort of women's presence in Himalayan expeditions that, you know, there were sort of, you know, big high altitude expeditions that, you know, were pretty much all male. I think it's often forgotten how much sport is about sort of sociability, you know, that actually we often tend to see sport as like, you know, it's it's purely about, you know, the capability, you know, the physiological capabilities of the body. And actually it isn't. It's like, you know, it's a gentleman's club often, you know, this is why you get, you know, like golf clubs and, you know, sort of not letting women in. It's not actually to do with them playing golf. It's because like men don't want to have lunch with them. It's like, it's like bloke time, you know, it's like the same as fantasy football. You know, it's kind of like you have this little guy club. Totally. And I think sort of, you know, institutions like the Alpine Club, particularly for something like mountaineering, actually, where like most people who are mountaineers don't actually live in mountainous regions, you know, particularly not in the 19th century. You know, there was something they did like once a year. And so if you're a member of like an Alpine Club in London, you spend most of your time like going to lectures and dinners, you know, rather than actually doing any mountaineering. So it is a club, you know, it is a club that's all about sociability and about sort of, you know, who men want to have dinner with and want to sort of smoke pipes around, you know, rather than actually who they want to climb mountains with. And, you know, the sort of, you know, Himalayan um, expeditions in like the early 20th century were the same. You know, you get women writing in to say, I'd really like to come along. You know, this is my huge amount of expertise and, you know, this is how good I am. And you'd get letters back saying like, you know, oh, you know, like you can't have you can't have a woman on expedition. Like you'll get pregnant and, you know, like it, it will like hinder the men from, you know, like enjoying their downtime. And it's the same sort of, you know, it's the same kind of ideas about like actually what sport is for and why people do it and why it needs to be all male you know that sort of lasts from the 19th century like you know sort of up until kind of the 60s and 70s really but I mean also you know still around today yeah I think this is fascinating and I could talk to you forever about it because it it is really sport is a great way of looking at how gendered spaces actually are and how they still appear to be today and how they affect women on a daily basis you know it it's this this massive sense of unconscious bias our own sense of internalized misogyny there's just so much you could use sport as a way of explaining these things so i'm i must i must say goodbye but rachel thank you for coming on the podcast you're working on a book at the moment do you know do you have any idea when that's going to be available for people to read yeah so the book is called in her nature and it will be out october 2022 yeah so i'll submit this year and it'll be out next year yeah so you've got about 18 months until it comes out and is that um is that like an academic uh, monograph or is it going to be is it going to be available in sort of widespread bookstores and things Oh, yeah, no, it's a trade book. It's published by Chateau. And yeah, no, it's very much for a non-academic audience. I mean, it's partly memoir, actually. So, you know, a lot of it is sort of like my own um, experiences, like running in public space as a woman. You know, a lot of it's about sort of 
grief and loss and, you know, how, like, you know, I think as women, we sort of live with this sense of like dispossession, you know, that we're like literally dispossessed of an ability to sort of feel free in public space and sort of kind of what it means, I think, sort of, you know, emotionally and psychologically to live with that sense of like anxiety and feeling at risk and feeling dispossessed. Yeah. So it's very much um, not an academic book. Yeah. That's great. I'm so looking forward to reading that. And that's so that's um, autumn 2022. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. And I love the title. Would you would you repeat it again? <laughs> um, yeah, it's called In Her Nature. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. And congratulations on writing that because that that does sound fantastic. So I'm sure people who are listening to this will be looking out for that too. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks so much for having me on. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.